welcome to those who are joining. You're listening to the Fintech Cafe. Today is our episode 37, and we're joined by Sean Salas, who's the co-founder and CEO of Camino Financial. This is just a hobby. We have our full-time jobs, Manisha and I, and our employer is not associated with the show. We're also not endorsing any products and certainly not providing any investment advice. The intention is just to cultivate a community of thought leadership. So with that, let's get started. <laughs> my introduction, my name is Ambika, and uh, I'm a product manager within the fintech space. And I met Sean at Money 2020. His brother and I were in the same cohort at Money 2020. So through that, I invited Sean to join us, and I'm so excited to have him here. But I'll pass it on to Manisha for her introduction. Thank you, Ambika. Monisha Chakrabani, glad to host you, Sean, this evening, um, co-host with Ambika on Fintech Cafe. Uh, with that, we get started, Sean. So, you know, could you give me a quick introduction about yourself and then we'll launch into questions? Sure. Well, where do I start? I like to start straight from the beginning. I'm Sean Salas, the CEO and co-founder of Camino Financial. But really, before I get into what Camino Financial is, I'm the son of an entrepreneur that immigrated from Mexico in pursuit of the American dream. As cheesy as that sounds, millions of uh, immigrants have really formed this country and see entrepreneurship as their only means of building generational wealth. And that was no different for me and my mom. And my mom effectively opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California. I, I remember needing to, every night I would fight with my twin brother, Kenny, over who would sleep in, in my mom's bed at night, because that was really the only time we could see her. So she was a very hard worker while being the head of household with six children, my brother and I being the youngest of the six. And, and it was you know, great seeing that entrepreneurial spirit and, and hardworking work, work ethic of my mother. It was also really sad to see that she did lose her business. And at that point in time, Kenny and I were 12 years old. So it was a character building moment to say the least. And, and then thereafter, my mom decided to really reset her life, remarry, move back to Mexico. So we we're living in Los Angeles at that time. And she decided to move back to Mexico and really restart her life and take the youngest two of six children with her. So I was in that sense, really lucky to be the youngest in my family alongside my twin brother and, and thereafter benefit from having a full-time mom that had lived through a lot of stuff. <laughs> and, and so I attribute a lot of my success to her and my inspiration to help small businesses and, and, and really came back to the U.S. when I was 20 years old, re-immigrated, was lucky enough to get into Berkeley, UC Berkeley, along with my twin brother, and then we cut our teeth in finance and investment banking and thereafter private equity and, and always saw as our North Star financial inclusion, right? We really loved finance and working on very complex transactions, but equally saw the limitations in this case of private equity as an investment vehicle into businesses that were similar to that of my mom. And so that really was the backstory behind uh, deciding to go get our MBA. And we were lucky enough to both get into Harvard Business School. And that's where we would incubate what today is Camino Financial. Thanks for sharing that. Sounds like uh, not an easy start there. So Camino Financial, which roughly translates to the pathway to bankability, could you share a little more about the Camino story? 
Absolutely. So today we're a fintech platform pioneering affordable credit to underbanked micro businesses. 90% of our borrowers are Latino or people of color. They 25% of them don't have credit history. And the median cash balance of any given borrower is around $2,300 when our average check size is about now today $18,000. So in summary, we're lending to thin file, cash heavy micro businesses in the the underserved micro business economy. And as you can imagine, uh, this is a credit profile that many banks don't serve at all. And and in in we founded this company at in 2015. Actually, in 2014, while we we're getting our MBA, we, we actually were full time on it in 2015. But 2014, in a, in a time where the fintech boom was in its very early innings. Now, today, it's very intuitive. Everyone knows what fintech is all about. But, you know, at this point in time, we were still in early innings and saw an opportunity to leverage technology. And further down, we would learn the power of AI and and, and amplifying our capabilities and use that in order to address some of the structural barriers that, that inhibited many of these micro businesses from accessing capital. And so that's really what we set out to do. I'm happy to tell you that to date we've deployed, not raised, deployed, money moved over $130 million worth of capital across thousands of micro businesses. And I can tell you right now, we plan to duplicate that lifetime amount of loans that I just quoted just in this year. <laughs> so that's how fast we're growing. We're really proud to be doing what we're doing. And we see a big unmet need. And most importantly, so much unmet potential within our micro business economy here in the United States. So I know... Today we're we're talking about in, in, about small businesses, but we actually have requalified it around micro businesses and solopreneurs, and we have the benefit to work with a lot of different partners that see this value. One of them is actually in the crowd today, so I, I'll uh, call him out, Carlos Marquez. If you don't follow him, please follow him. He's amazing. He's a big influencer among Latino solopreneurs, a great speaker, and 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 is, has his own radio show and all that good stuff. And we're able to effectively offer these services through different platforms, either through Carlos Marquez or directly to market. And we just, once again, found a very big need and unmet market demand, and, and we're fulfilling it every day. And a quick follow-up on that for the purpose of clarification. How do you define the micro-business? Aha, uh-huh, I'm glad you asked. Very Walked good. Into that. <laughs> so, okay, the, very important. And we're going to, I'm going to give you, so I'm going to answer your question directly. A micro business is technically defined as a registered business. And by registered business, it's a business that has applied for an employee identification numbers with less than five employees. That is the technical definition of a micro business. Okay. Let's let's double click on that because we need a double click, okay? Okay, five less than five employees. I get it, right? However, if we look at the 30-ish or so million businesses in the United States 
And we, yeah, we draw, we draw that line at five employees. But today in our economy, among registered businesses, 92% of those businesses are not just micro businesses, they're non-employer businesses. Okay, so roughly 27-ish million. And so when we think about the micro business economy, we're thinking about the teeny tiny, right? And don't get me started with now what I'm starting to define as the solopreneur economy, which is the massive sub-segment of the micro business economy. And now you're seeing a lot of gray between that part of the economy and the gig economy. So these are there these are terms that quite frankly aren't used often enough and yet ironically represent well over 90% of the opportunity. And so that's where we're at. Thanks. And a lot of new terms for my learning and you did reference that the bigger financial institutions fear to tread in the space. So how do you, how, how have you chosen to tread in a space where others have been scared to get into? Yeah. So, I mean, look, this is going to be a quick mini history lesson on not just on fintech, but within fintech, what I'll call alternative lending in fintech that is now evolving. And, but I, let, let me, let me give the quick context because I think it's very important for everyone hearing, listening in. So as I think about that history lesson in 2008, we had the Great Recession when, of course, you know, banks went under. In fact, that, that was my first year in, in my career. And Ken, Kenny, my twin brother, joined Lehman Brothers of all firms. <laughs> and I was at UBS and both firms were hard hit, but Lehman a, a lot harder, as you can imagine. And, and so, so banks really pulled back and not just investment banks. I'm talking about retail banks like the Bank of America's and Chase's of the world pulled back heavily on small business lending. And while the aggregate amount of loans have increased since then, since 2008, if you look at the average loan sizes of loans, they really have never recovered since 2008. And what does that mean? That means that banks are effectively out of the business of offering loans below $150,000. And, and, and regulation, and, and by the way, I, I'm a moderate in nature, I don't take a side, but just objectively speaking, and I, re- I address this actively in my podcast, Fundamental Fairness, there is a consensus that bank regulation has correlated with less lending to these smaller businesses that, that I was referring to. So therefore, that gave rise to fintechs and within fintech is that too broad of a term alternative lenders that saw an opportunity without the regulation of being a bank and with the benefit of technology to innovate in the space and so initially i would say alternative lending 1.0 basically what they did which is pretty simple is they just teched up the experience and removed all the friction from the process so just to give you a sense it would take a borrower And it didn't matter if it was a loan for $20,000 or if it was a loan for $800,000. All these borrowers, for the most part, were submitted into the same analog process in which it would take a borrower from start to finish three months to get that loan, okay? And it would take an aggregate of hours invested by the small business owner around 32 hours. 
to get a loan, okay? And, and so, of course, that process was way too inefficient. And so you saw these alt lenders saying, well, we can tech up this experience easily and really effectively use the power of technology to automate that process and use new data sets um, available to us to, to get to a credit decision faster and more accurately, i.e. better than FICO. And so that's really where a lot of the, the, the 1.0 disruption occurred. And now, like, then you go to phase two, and that was interesting because in the alternative lenders 2.0, you started saying, okay, everyone started teching things up and the barriers to entry weren't as clear uh, to some investors. And so when, so you saw the emergence of like the SOFIs of the world, right? Who are like, hey, we're going to focus on niche market opportunities. And as we focus on those niche market opportunities, we're going to deepen the value within those segments with other products that are credit and non-credit related. So it's not just about being an, a lender. It's about being a, a super app or a financial store, an all-in-one financial store or a neobank, whatever you want to call it, right? And so that was really uh, alternative lending 2.0, who are now you can call them, call it neobank super app plays into specific segments. And and so some of the 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 successful players there had been the SoFi's of the world and Camino Financial. That's really how we were born, where we effectively, you know, we started with the Latino business segment. We've actually since expanded because we saw that with by focusing on the, the Latino business segment, which is the largest and fastest growing micro business segment in the United States, we got a lot of product insights that we saw were transferable into other underserved segments. And then the third part, and this is where the future is going, is really what is broadly referred to as embedded finance. And this is the third chapter of where we're going, where effectively a lot of these businesses have aggregated so much data and expertise around these different segments in the market that they can effectively sell that expertise into enterprise partners like banks or strategic partners like a firm selling, you know, um, its financial services through a through Peloton, and so if you own a Peloton like me, you likely finance it through a firm, and you probably may not even know it. So that's that's the history around that and how we've differentiated ourselves over time, and we're evolving with the market too. I would say where we're differentiated across that evolution, which we're following too, is this notion of that micro business and solopreneur segments of the economy that have been misunderstood and and massively underserved. So Sean, just a clarification, are you then a balance sheet lender or more like a marketplace? How would you define? Ah, <laughs> well, the, the short answer is we're a, the, the, we do take on some balance sheet risk but we also equally partner with institutional partners that really see the value in our lending expertise, but would be feel more comfortable taking on that balance sheet risk themselves because they want the yield. And then, then and, and as we evolve, we also see the opportunity to getting to a scale within, quite frankly, the next 18 to 24 months, where even the loans that we have on balance sheet, we can repackage and sell as a security in the public markets and are the debt capital markets 
and, and, and so therefore we can even de-risk ourselves and create more liquidity that way. So I think once you get to a certain scale where we're going at, where you're definitely, you know, run rating well over a hundred million dollars um, in loans, I think at that, you know, it, it becomes of interest. It's, it becomes a hybrid. In fact, the, the the folks at QED, Frank Rotman, someone that I deeply respect, and he's one of the founders, um, co-founders of QED, which is a prominent fintech venture capital firm. You know, he he wrote a really good post on Twitter about, I don't care, like the jury's out. Like you can tell me you're an on balance or off balance sheet lender, but the reality is that anyone that moves money has direct or indirect exposure to that balance sheet. Now, how you position that, of course, right, and, and package that will be dependent on the nuances. But one thing I can tell you um, is that we control every credit decision that we make, and we service every loan that we originate. That is really important for us versus effectively brokering loans, right, on behalf of other lenders. No, we're going to control 100% of that experience. But where that money lies and who's going to bear the risk and the upside of that loan that will be, you know, that will depend. Got it. So that's why you use the example of SoFi because SoFi you was a balance sheet lender for personal loan. Let's say they control the credit decisioning as well as the servicing. But I want to, I want to, I guess I want to push back a little and I want to say, yes, SoFi was a Neo investor neo lenders supposedly back then because they didn't want to use FICO. So I worked at SoFi, by the way. So they didn't want to use FICO, but then that wasn't a sustainable credit decisioning model. And then SoFi did end up using FICO. What are your views on FICO as a credit decision, I guess, methodology for your customer segment? Yeah. Hey, you know what? You clearly know your stuff. So I'm not going to be one of those fintech entrepreneurs that I don't know if we can cuss on this, but shit on FICO. FICO can actually be very accurate in in predicting the probability of default within certain segments, in particular, the higher FICO scores because FICO skews conservative in its methodologies. So if you're like a 700, 720 and above, the chances are that your likelihood of defaulting are very low and and beating FICO in in within those segments is really hard. So, you know, as SoFi has moved up market, for instance, I'm absolutely not surprised that they would use FICO. Where I find FICO, just to be quite frankly, by definition, less relevant is, for instance, at Camino Financial, 25% of our bars don't have FICO. So when you're working with first-generation immigrants that don't have a FICO score because, you know, they don't have credit history, that, of course, creates a big gap in the market. And that's where we can create an edge on our conversion with that segment. So it really depends on what segment you're underwriting for. And I agree, I don't speak in absolutes in terms of FICO. Um, I think people have used alternatives to FICO, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean FICO is 100% irrelevant to your point. Got it. And then going further on this funding side, the Euro balance sheet lender, last year in 2021, April, you got certification from U.S. Treasury as a CDFI, a Community Development Financial Institution. So congratulations. Uh, I don't know of any fintech that has a CDFI. So a couple of questions on this topic. 
first, how do you become a CDFI and what does it mean? All right. So I'll start with what it means so people can contextualize the pain of how it took us to get it. So we, we are definitely the first national fintech CDFI focused on small business lending ever, period, case in point. So, so we, we wear that label with pride. And, and so that's number one. Number two, what CDFI stands for is Community Development Financial Institution. And uh, sorry for being, you know, giving another slight history lesson for our audience. But, but CDFIs were effectively created in order to make capital more equitable. And, and it really stems from some, some legislation called the Community Reinvestment Act. And that Community Investment Act was enacted in the, I believe in the 70s, maybe a little earlier, to effectively force banks to have minimum standards on lending to African-American communities and other communities of color and, and lend uh, into low to moderate income areas, which predominantly were populated by um, black and brown communities. And so, and so banks really have and continue to need to uphold to this legislation called CRA. And it started with real estate lending. And then in the 90s, that mandate for CRA expanded into small business lending because, of course, the economic benefit of lending to small businesses. And of course, if you lend into small businesses owned by underrepresented minorities, it's statistically proven to demonstrate not only job creation, but economic empowerment within these communities. So it made perfect sense to expand the scope of that. But what's interesting is that banks, right, in and of themselves, struggle to do this directly. Like community lending needs to be in your DNA. And so effectively that brought, you know, the birth to community development financial institutions. And and really community development financial institutions, it sounds just like what they, what they are sounds exactly what their, their name is. It's just a mouthful. They're designed to develop with their communities through finance. And their finance products are almost predominantly real estate lending, both commercial and residential, and, and, and small business lending. And so, so that's really what a CDFI is. Now, what differentiates a CDFI from a bank, for instance? Well, what's interesting is, uh, and this is typically the split of CDFIs, there are about, about 1,100 CDFIs out there, okay? And you could be a VC, you could be a bank, or you could be a non-bank CDFI. So, you know, being a bank or a VC and a CDFI are not mutually exclusive, okay? What's interesting is that as a CDFI, you get access to specific pools of capital that can be substantially cheaper, right? So, like, for instance, using the example of the Community Reinvestment Act for banks, um, banks are incentivized to move money into CDFIs at lower costs of capital. And even stemming from 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement, both the government and many private institutions made commitments aggregating to over $40 billion to invest in Black and brown communities almost exclusively through CDFIs. Now, what's ironic when we're talking about these numbers is that there isn't a fintech until communal financial innovating in this space. And so while CDFIs have been successful in moving billions of dollars into underserved communities, these billions of dollars are literally maybe 1% to 2% 
of the aggregate dollars that are moved into these communities. So why aren't we finding a better way to innovate within CDFIs and you know, drastically move subsidized pools of capital into these markets so we can effectively lower the cost of funding? And so that's, that's an area where Camino Financial is actively investing in and innovating. And now the, the short answer on how we became one, it took us three years. It was very painful. There is a stigma. Here's what comes with CDFIs. So I told you 50% of them, very small percent of them are like VCs, like 1%, like 49% are banks and the other 50% are nonprofits. And, you know, as you can imagine, and the ones that are banks are teeny tiny banks. And then the ones that are not, and the nonprofits, you know, you can imagine that, you know, maybe you do or don't know this, but like fintechs, fintech is still a bad word among nonprofit CDFI. And I think they're coming around to it. But like, if you're dealing with that stigma, and then of course, the speculation that comes from going over a very regulated application process, you know, it just, it took us a long time to effectively get people comfortable that this is where the market is going and we're the best position to lead the charge. We have like one minute. So I'm trying to figure out what should be the last question that I get to ask you before we open up. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your customers, maybe a use case. Who are your customers that you're serving? Yeah. Oh, use cases. Let me think about a few. Well, Celsio, so, I mean, I, I, the one that I love a lot is Celsio because it's very, Celsio Hernandez, he basically uh, runs a, a fusion Latin restaurant, like Peruvian and Dominican. And it's literally down the street from where the Camino Financial Office is. And, and I love going and eating there. Because every time he asks me to go, you can see that there's partitions between different sections of his restaurant that are still there. There's like grooves on the floor. And, and I remember the first time he invited me over, he's like, hey, Sean, look at those grooves on the floor. I haven't taken them out on purpose because those grooves represent my expansion. So when I started this restaurant, it was just this little nook. And then... You know, I, I, I went to the adjacent spot and then thanks to your loan, I opened this other, the largest part of the, of the restaurant, which is now really more where he has like live musicians come and play and so forth. And so I really love that story because it just demonstrates how much potential there is with our, our, our small business and micro business community for that matter. And one thing he told me, that's very important and it stayed with me for a very long time. And we since adjusted our mission because of these words that he shared with me. He sh- I don't know if he knows how big of an impact his advice was on me. He's like, you know why I took a loan from Camino Financial? I'm like, why? He's like, because you guys are going to help me build patrimonio. And patrimonio means generational wealth in Spanish. So the job to be done here is not even just getting a loan to expand that extra space in his restaurant. The job to be done is to enable him to build generational wealth through and beyond his business. And so that's really set the North Star for us in terms of how we're going to innovate and deepen our relationship with all our members. Lovely. Time is up for our for the moderated session. So I want to definitely open up to the audience. I think, Sean, you're going to get a lot more questions than what we had for you. So 
At this time, we welcome you to please come on stage and ask your question. If you're new to Clubhouse, there is an icon. It's like a hand in the bottom right. If you click on that, Manisha and I, we can bring you up on stage. And at that point, you can share your thoughts. Or if you don't want to come up, you can send us your question and we will read it on your behalf. But please note that we are recording today's call, so we'll read out your name. So while we wait for the question, I guess I can ask you one, Sean, and that is, I want to go back to CDFI. As part of the tax reformation of 2017, 2018, I think it was, Congress also passed something called Opportunity Zone Funds. And as much as I know about the Opportunity Zone Funds, it's actually managed through the U.S. Treasury through the CDFI program. Is that something you're engaged with? Yeah, so not yet, but it's a very interesting piece of legislation. So for for those that, that let, let me explain what the Opportunity Zone Fund. So remember, we talked about subsidized pools of capital. I just gave you the one example of the bank versus of moving subsidized pools of capital under CRA Act. But this act is a different incentive that actually offers any big money mover, hedge fund, pension fund to actually deploy capital into into underserved communities through CDFIs. And so effectively, it's not exclusively through CDFIs. So it's, it is worth noting that. But the, the point is that the opportunity zone funds are effectively zones that are underserved, low to moderate income areas uh, that need require economic investment. And so what this legislation did was incentivize the private investors to literally, and you're not going to believe this, defer, if not eliminate, all their taxable capital gains, all right, that are due by by redeploying what they would otherwise pay in capital gains into these opportunity zones, okay? <laughs> and literally, if you do, now, there need to be, a, they need to be a qualifying investment. So they need a 1B deployed through an opportunity zone fund, many of which are CDFIs, right? And then through these funds, but it's not exclusively through CDFIs, but CDFIs are the best position as you can imagine to move these monies, right? And then number one, and number two, they have to be qualified areas, opportunity zone, so that's already codified. And three, they need to be qualified investments. And so where we're seeing the most movement of that capital is in real estate investments. You can make sizable small business investments, but you can't do lending right now. And so that's why Camino Financial hasn't been a, a, a part of the Opportunity Zone Fund. But but here's the thing, and this is what I love about this legislation, is that you know, the, you know, I mean, as crazy as our politics are right now, there is bipartisan support for these kind of economic development programs. And there is a clear view that CDFIs play a special role in mobilizing these pools of capital. And so I think that while the first draft of this program is good, it's certainly not good enough, but I'm very optimistic that, you know, independent of what party is in control, that steps will be made to move this type of legislation forward and CDFIs will be at the forefront of deploying that capital. So I'm really excited about it. And that's one of many other examples of where CDFIs can play a big role. Yeah, real estate has been 
where most of the funds have been deployed as part of Opportunity Zone funds. But the intent of the law was to spur growth among the small businesses. And given that that's what you are focused on and you have a CDFI designation, I thought maybe perhaps you have plans to create a fund where maybe somebody in the audience can uh, contact you for investing in your fund to further deploy towards small businesses that are active in Opportunity Zone funds. So let's let's double click there because I, I have... So here's the irony of why I'm very big about distinguishing small businesses, micro businesses, and even solopreneurs. Okay. So remember the stats I was telling you, registered businesses, 92 plus percent of registered businesses are non-employers, not even micro businesses. That's a, so employers are a sub-segment of micro businesses. Of course, it's less than five employees, but they don't even, it's just sole proprietor with one employer, which is the owner, right? And so when we think about where we want to move the needle, a lot of this legislation, unfortunately, is not designed for this micro business slash solopreneur economy. And even if you think about where the innovation in fintech is happening, they're still focused on that top 8%. And and so and so in, and with that said, you know, the way these investments were structured is one, it limits lending. And so it's really hard to invest equity in these teeny tiny businesses. So the moment you 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 limit lending, then you effectively don't have the appropriate investment vehicle to invest in these small micro businesses and solopreneurs, right? And so and so once again, there's just structural nuance around distinguishing and defining these different segments of the market. And I think legislators, and this is something I push on all these calls, literally, I'm like, everyone's like, Sean, we know what you're going to say, but I do it. It's like, we're not being intentional enough about catering these programs and legislations to the micro entrepreneur. And, 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 and you guys even say, oh, let's be intentional about back and forth. I understand that, but I, I can tell you that if you be intentional about the micro entrepreneur, you will dramatically improve the access to capital to black and brown and alike communities. And so that's that's what I'm pushing all the time. And it's an uphill battle. And Sean, related to that, I mean, do you feel like a lot of the access is going to be primarily a policy play? Because one of the reasons I think some of the bigger players are probably staying out of the micro business space is, you know, they think about the profitability, right? Like the numbers. Um, So curious about how you think about that revenue model for the long term. I, I think that's a fair challenge. I can tell you that there are I always fall short. Like the only example I can give you is these micro businesses and solopreneurs are not unbanked. They're underbanked, and they have a lot of potential. I think they're they're uniquely positioned in an inflection point where they have the ability to go from small to big in a relatively short period of time, and that's where most of the value and profit is going to be created. So we call ourselves Camino Financial for a reason. Our underlying goal is we're going to be your starting point, but our whole purpose is to graduate you into being a bigger business. And we hope that we offer you the right type of experience that you'll stick with us along the way throughout your proverbial path or Camino in Spanish. So you're absolutely right. The starting point, you, you know, on the, you know, while I do think there are 
you know, there are responsible ways to offer affordable pricing and still deliver reasonable unit economics to the, the benefit of all stakeholders. I think to your point, you know, the, 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 the profitability is going to be more of a long tail play, but you know, and that's how you become disruptive because you're effectively capturing a segment in the market. That's the future. That's the new mainstream economy. I mean, we saw it in 2021 with the, you know, the great resignation this time, right? That it was one of 2020 and 2021 were record consecutive years of business formation in the United States. And so people are becoming more entrepreneurial. This is going the reality of our economy. And we feel we're early enough in this where we can build a real model around the opportunity at scale. Great, thank you. And a quick follow-up on that. Growth from a customer and unit economics comes through growth in products and other services. Is there a roadmap that you're thinking about beyond lending for small businesses or micro businesses? A hundred percent. So we absolutely have every intention to expand into other credit products that are wealth building within and beyond this segment. And, and we also are thinking about um, non-credit products that are complementary to our credit business, our, our credit products. Now th- I want to be very clear, right? Our, we're not necessarily pushing to be a neobank. I mean, look, and anything can and will change, but, but I feel like as I think about even the value deepening opportunity, you can either challenge banks or you can partner with them. And I'm on the, I'm on the path of partnering with them. <laughs> so, so wherever we can be complementary to banks, especially because we can actually meet a regulatory uh, concern of theirs, which is under CRA, right? I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to build that synergistic relationship because once again, due to regulation, banks may not, not ever be at the lending levels for this segment than before. And so that leaves a big opportunity for players like us to potentially work with what would otherwise be declined loans, right? And then refer them back. So, so yes, I think it's a two-pronged approach. It's one, which is deepening our relationship with our existing members, but also finding on the back end partnership opportunities with work with banks. And then our product mix will adjust accordingly. So this this is a synergistic ecosystem that we're building. Great, thank you. And I see we have some of our audience members joining us on stage. Daniela, welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself and what question do you have for Sean today? Sure, hi. Thank you for 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 the podcast and and I love the story about the the patrimonio. It really resonated with me. I am Daniela. I'm calling from from Mexico, and my question is this: What products do you offer to your customers? So today we offer, so we we offer a term loan. So we, and I will, I'll qualify it, which is we're in the hero product or wedge product stage of our product development. We're actually right in the crux of moving from a monoline credit strategy to a multi-line product strategy. And so when you ask me at this point in time, what product we're offering, we're offering a plain vanilla term loan, 24 months, monthly payments, no prepayment penalties. As plain vanilla, as sometimes simple is better. And really the edge is around our pricing, 
our ability to remove friction from the application process and giving our members the best gosh darn service that they can ever have, which is complemented with a very wide library of content that enables our members to make you know better business decisions in a non-intrusive and intuitive way. Um, so that's what we're doing today. But over time, to the question a little earlier, we do plan on extending other credit and non-credit products to this base that effectively, but once again, it's all about building generational wealth. So, so for instance, it's not crazy to think we're going to get in the, in the mortgage lending business. Why? Because whereas most of the growth in, you know, in, 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 uh, in real estate, it's coming from entrepreneurs that made it. And that may be the one and only investment they'll ever make outside of their business. And it's a wealth building product, right? Because that's usually typically for many Latinos in particular, which we're, is where our initial market focus is, you know, the one and maybe only investment they'll make that really builds that patrimonio, that generational wealth would be the home. So who better than us to do it? Thank you. And I just want to ask a clarification to that. The, these loans that you offer, they are from your balance sheet, right? Or when you said earlier that your model is hybrid, you're a little bit of marketplace, a little bit of balance sheet lender. How, how are you financing these loans? Yeah, so today we so we had just closed a debt facility. We haven't announced, but it's a big one. We'll announce it. But we just closed a sizable debt facility where I work with a large institutional partner to offer these loans. And effectively, it's on balance sheet, but we share that risk with this institutional partner. So that's how we're doing right now. But you know, as we scale, it will scale into more of the hybrid dynamic that I was referring to. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Daniela. Nice to hear from you. Keithy, over to you for your question or thought. Thank you, Ambika. Hi, Sean. Very inspiring to hear your story and the products you're building. I am Kirti. I've uh, worked in financial services for 10 years and I have two questions for you. First of all, a lot of these small businesses are using a lot of other competitor pro uh, products for payment processing. Do you think that, uh, and there's a huge need for that because of the cash intensive business. Do you plan to go leverage your um, current lending, uh, lending product and plan to expand into that segment as well? Yes or not, depending on the risks. And uh, my second question is like, based on the current one, two years, because of COVID and high inflation, a lot of, we see a lot of small businesses are failing. So how do you, uh, how do you see the risk of that in the current scenarios? And uh, what are your plans, if any, to mitigate this? And how is it impacting your portfolio overall? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the questions. And I really appreciate it. So let, let me address the, the first point, which is payments and the trajectory and getting to payments. I think if you look at the case studies, most lenders at one point in time get into payments. And, and why? So I think if you take a big step back, and even the big payments companies will tell you this, there is no profit in payments. Payments is a commoditized product. And, but what, what is in payments is a ton of data. And so, and so as we think about payments, once again, we, we see the hardest part and where most profits are, not surprisingly, right? Risk corresponds with reward is in, is in credit. And, and I think there's a lot of 
these neo banks and payment solution providers out there that have realized that sooner rather than later or sooner or later it depends on which one we're talking about and and so there is a natural synergy and so i think based on that we we will definitely realize that synergy at one point the question now becomes and this is what's really cool about today's market right is do you need to build that core infrastructure yourself is that something that our investors are going to reward us for is is building the payments infrastructure versus the lending credit and AI infrastructure, what you're going to get rewarded for. And that's something that we'll have to decide. But what's something that's very interesting about the fintech industry in general is that there's a lot of infrastructure tech companies that are exclusively servicing the fintech industry. And it's, you can call it payment as a service, whatever, in this scenario. And one company in particular that is an outlier there in is Phoenix, and 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 they you know could potentially be offer that infrastructure and we just layer into it so that enables us to plug into that a lot faster. They had partnered with Cabbage, which is a very prominent alternative lender, and and it's all white labeled. So from from the end users standpoint it's as if it's your own payment solution so i think that's something that we'll we'll, we will definitely contemplate and likely do at one point in time as it relates to your question around performance and failure rates we so you're right so let's let's call it spade a spade right over i believe 70 or 80 percent of businesses go out of business within the first seven years right and and that 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 failure rate is heavily skewed in the first two years of business, okay? And so the systemic risks associated with investing in any small business is real. That's why I tell everybody, it's like, the risk is real <laughs> and you have to price for it, but you also need to make sure that, that you are being thoughtful enough in your underwriting where you're not putting businesses that are at high risk in a more difficult situation and you're optimizing for the scenario in which you're enabling a business to be bigger and offering the right pricing and structure around that opportunity. And that's where the science is, right? Around the underlying IP that we're using, which translates into most, right now, the predominant use case of our AI, which translates into what we call a Camino score, which is an alternative to FICO. So that's that's part one, but AI can be used across multiple dimensions of the lending experience. And then, and, and happy to talk about that more. But the other thing I wanna say relating to COVID specifically is that what we're finding, and it's all about relative risk and what you can price for it, okay? So these small, teeny, tiny micro-businesses that we're referring to, these businesses in general are much more resilient than we give them credit for, literally. During COVID, their failure rates were overwhelmingly lower than what people were initially predicting. They're like, oh, it's the end of this. All these businesses are, are, are closing. And what you found is that you know, when you're that you know, at the base of the pyramid, you can't afford to close. This is your livelihood. This is your predominant source of income. If you can't do this, you can't put food on the table. And so I think the underlying resilience of this and the flexibility, like some of these businesses are much more mobile, right? 
a food truck can move a location, a street vendor can switch things around or get a side hustle or another job to subsidize their business until it's standing up again. And so that resiliency really translates well into less volatility risk than people give them credit for. But then on that point, volatility is a key point here. When we think about the relative volatility risk relative to pricing for like near prime versus prime borrowers and its impact on during the COVID and other credit crises, what we find is that prime borrowers are typically priced based on the assumption that the loss rate is going to be somewhere between 2 and 3%. So when, let's just say it's 2% and it spikes up to 6% during a downfall. You know, 6% is not bad, right? But it's a 3x increase in relative expected losses. And you're charging a margin that's laser thin for prime borrowers because it's such a competitive market. Whereas when we talk, talk about near prime or even subprime, but we consider our borrowers near prime, just to be clear. And let's say you have a default rate that goes from 8% expected to 12%. Sure, yeah, it, it, it went up, right, by 50%, but it's not 300%, right? And specifically with this segment of the market, you're able to price more efficiently for that volatility risk and still be price competitive. And so there's a lot of room for pricing and managing risk in this segment of the market versus prime segments of the market. And that's where we're building our edge and our expertise. Thank you so much. That's very insightful. Thank you. Thanks. So we have two more people on this on stage, Sean, and then I think two more questions from the back channel. So we have four questions in six minutes. Uh, so let's quick. go to Jeffrey. <laughs> no, I just want to be mindful of your time. <laughs> right. So, Jeffrey, I think you both know each other. So, Jeff, take it away. Hi, Sean. It's great to see you again. Hi, I know um, you went to Cal together. I know your brother and all that. And you've definitely been a shining star for your community, for Cal, for everyone. Oh, um, I think my only question is, I know you're dealing with uh, people, my micro lending. So my whole thing is, okay, for business acumen, sometimes they are people, black and brown people, don't know the actual, the, the technical language. But we intrinsically, we know the language. But it's just that other skills that we need to learn in order to grow our business. And I was wondering, does Camino Financial offer that type of non-lending, non-financial support to help that business grow and succeed and build generational wealth? I, I love that question. Thank you for asking. And uh, we have a saying at Camino Financial. It says, capital in isolation is not the solution. I'll repeat it. Capital in isolation is not the solution. So you absolutely, 120%, in order to manage and price this risk properly, need to assume that you're offering complementary services and advice into this segment in order to de-risk and set people up for success. So that's the short um, answer. Let me give you the slightly longer answer, and I'm sensitive to time. It's when you apply it that really differentiates a lot of lenders in the space. Muhammad Yunus, who's like the father of microfinance, he's a big believer that you shouldn't condition a loan to offering what's called technical assistance. And a lot of people usually do that condition. You can, you should assume that 
there's already, and I think you, you said this, people already know intrinsically how, what they need to do to succeed. It doesn't mean they don't need nudges in the right direction and you can offer that post-close. So that's, and, and we're offering the incentive scheme too by offering longer term lower interest rate prices over time, broadening our suite of loans, right? To people that are performing so that they're more likely to do the right thing. Thanks, Jeff. And Eileen, welcome back. Hi. Hi, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and recommend that you take the back channel questions just to give the audience members um, that opportunity. And I'll hang tight if there's um, time for me to ask my question. Certainly. So the next question is from Itala. She works at Build.com in user experience. And she's saying that, well, she's saying what I read already, which is she works at Build.com. She works with small businesses. How can Build.com help you Camino Financial in your vision. So she's asking for what's the stake for like partnership. I love it. Please email info at CaminoFinancial.com with your request and we'll get in contact with you. I mean, it's very important that we partner and, and, uh, or PM me here on Clubhouse or my, my, my handle is Sean D S E A N D Salas S A L A S. And, I'm more than happy to connect you with the right people at Camino Financial so we can talk about partnerships. Thanks for asking. Sure. And the next one is from Megan. And uh, she's asking, you know, when we're focused on the underbanks, a lot of, as you focus also on going away from MICA, from FICO scores or credit scoring models and using new types of decisioning model. So she's asking for if you could double click on that. Are you using, let's say, open banking as another way to help assess whether for credit decisioning purposes? Oh, 100%. I mean, that's par for the course now. I, I would actually say, like, I included like open banking slash transaction data in, in really alternative lending 1.0. I actually feel like a lot of the scoring <laughs> has reached its maturity and sophistication like earlier last, like, like in 2015. And so I measure FinTech in dog year. So that was a long time ago. I think there's still innovation to be said. And I also, I actually agree with what you said earlier. I actually don't think that FICO shouldn't be considered, especially as you move up market and graduate your borrowers. And so I, I think I take a, a slightly more contrarian view to other fintech entrepreneurs like death against FICO, weird can do things better. I think there's just different data sets that are more relevant that are relevant to people at different points in time. And the the science around it is is finding what you know what subset of data makes most sense to price the loan most efficiently at that point in time. And that requires AI and a ton of infrastructure and data to do it. And so, so yeah, it's good modeling and a treasure trove of data, but the pools of data for the most part, outside of people giving you the underlying authority to access that data, which is not a trivial task, that's real and becoming more complicated and regulated over time. That's where, that's where the value is, which is why, you know, to the point that, that Kurti uh, made earlier, you know, payments is a natural progression for many lenders, including Camino because you get more access to that treasure trove of data uh, that can enable you just to be smarter. Great, thank you. And the last question, this one's from James and he would like to learn a little bit about your fundraising experience. How has it been? 
Ooh, okay. You know what? I'll end with a call to action, which is I'm actually hosting uh, on Twitter spaces. Sorry for everyone that's like clubhouse diehards. It's the first time I'm using Twitter spaces for, for what it's worth. Tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific, check out my announcements, whether it's on LinkedIn or Twitter. And we're going to literally talk about fundraising and how darn, damn hard it is to do it as a minority too. <laughs> so if you're interested in that, I'll leave you with that call to action. And we'll spend an hour plus on that. Done. I'll be there. So I guess the question from me, and I'm speaking on behalf of Manisha, so a question from both of us, how can we be of help in your mission? Whatever ways, how can we as a fintech community help you? Yeah, as a fintech community, I think one, asking us to have open discussions about the micro business and solopreneur economy, like that definition, and I always leave people with that. That nuance is super important that we educate people on the nuance of the difference between small business economy, micro business economy, and even the solopreneur economy. And how and, and qualifying how big it is, quantifying and quali- qualifying the market and quantifying its size so that we as a community and ecosystem can be more intentional about innovating in this space. And that's something that I'm deeply passionate about because I think with the right focus, we're going to disproportionately benefit those that have been underserved in the market. And we're going to create a lot of generational wealth or patrimonio in the communities that we dearly appreciate. And quite frankly, that we, quite, that we depend on in order to move forward as an economy and as a country. Well, this was certainly a very educational call for me, and I think it's the same for everyone. We get lots of questions from our founders in terms of jobs at their company. So what we do is on our website, fintechcafe.org, you can access the job board and see whatever roles are available at the companies that we're hosting. It's past an hour, so I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you again. I have some ideas in mind in terms of how I think we can help you further, but I'll be in touch with you offline. So thank you for your time today and for educating all of us about your vision and what you're doing. Well, thank you for inviting me. It really means a lot. And thank you everyone for, for sticking around for an hour. Certainly. Thank you, John. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening.